Good morning, Redeemer. If you would, open with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. This summer, while Elbert's on sabbatical, we have been in the Gospels, um, hearing the words of Jesus. And when I've been with you, we've in particular talked about what Jesus has to say about the kingdom of God. What is it? What is it not? We've seen that the kingdom of God is not primarily a place nor a people, nor a particular circumstance or situation, the kingdom in Scripture is shorthand for the rule and reign of God. The kingdom of God is the power of God being manifested into the world, working in and through history. It's slowly revealed through a kaleidoscope as the light of Jesus shines in the darkness. As we look and see the light of the world, we see beautiful fragments going in different directions. It's complicated, but it's, it's absolutely gorgeous. It brought me a lot of joy as I visited with one of you over the past month or two, um, and I walked away with what might have been the greatest gift I've received um, from a congregant, but they gave me a kaleidoscope. It's this beautiful little wood grain kaleidoscope. And this one, you don't turn. Um, actually, the glass pieces on top, it has broken fragments of glass inside. And so as you spin it, the broken pieces are what shine that beauty. That's how I want you guys to think about the kingdom of God as the light of Jesus shines in the world. We've also seen that the kingdom is mysterious, okay? It's hidden like a tiny mustard seed or a little bit of leaven. The kingdom then is unexpected. It's even offensive. Could anything good come out of Nazareth? Could anything good come from Jackson, Mississippi? That's what we see in Jesus. As the disciples are wondering, is this it? Is this how you're going to usher in the kingdom of God? But today, I hope you're asking a further question. How do I enter this kingdom? What does it look like to belong to this kingdom of God? Jesus makes it very plain in the opening verses of Matthew chapter 18. So let's read and then we'll pray um, and then we'll consider this text together. Matthew 18, we're going to start right there in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. So much joy, so much pain in one short little section. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the gift of worship. Thank you for these dear saints who have gathered. I do pray that you would be working in our hearts, illuminating by your Holy Spirit what we see here. I do pray, Lord, you would challenge our assumptions, that you would apply the medicine of your grace to the pride and suspicion that, Lord, we hold about the future and each other. Remind us, as, Lord, we study this, that we bring no status but with Jesus. No, so we have no status but Jesus. We come like toddlers before you today. We are dependent on you for everything. Lord, may the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight and yours alone, my rock and my redeemer. All right, kids, can I see you? Let me see all my kids. 
I want you to draw a castle during this sermon. Can you draw a castle for me? Complete with a moat all the way around? That's your assignment. If you can listen while doing that, then you're gonna, I'm going to be really impressed. And I'd love to see your castles at the end, okay? Come show them to me at the, at the door on the way out. This passage comes on the heels of a shock to the disciples' system. An absolute shock to their system. Near the end of Matthew 17, we hear this. Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And listen to what it says. And they were greatly distressed. The disciples were shook at the thought of losing their leader, losing Jesus, losing this Messiah. Perhaps maybe it's logical for them to wonder who's on deck if something happens to Jesus. Who will continue to lead the revolution? Maybe it's Peter on this rock, I'll build my church. But then Jesus flatly rebuked Peter by saying, get behind me, Satan. So we need to understand what's behind this question. It is wrong for them to be jockeying for position in the kingdom of God. We get that in hindsight. But we need to understand a little bit about the importance of honor in ancient societies. It's something we've lost. The importance of honor. You might hear people discourage what we call a shame-honor culture, but I think we're often only looking at it from the negative and missing something that is core to the human condition. Competition for honor was and is very important in many societies. Whether that honor comes by birth, by age, by the law, by your rank, by your status, but that for many, that just determined your quality of life. For good or for bad, that's how it was in many societies. Many Jewish people hoped for new status in the kingdom to come. Isn't that interesting? With this new kingdom, with this kingdom of God, my lot will change. I will have different status. I will be given honor. And that in itself is not necessarily an evil desire. But here's the thing. Children, much more than today, were especially powerless and dependent with no status. In this, in this ancient Israelite culture, even though humility was valued as a virtue, that humility was rarely ever expressed toward children, and especially not by exalting children. It didn't really apply to them. It went right over their heads. Allow me to draw from an illustration well that I visited before. I kind of have the habit of going back to the same places, so do, do forgive me. Um, our own children's director, Jawan, has noted that in Roald Dahl's Matilda, Mrs. Trunchbull is convinced that there is nothing that a child can do that is exceptional or good. She personifies low expectations that many have for children. Right? The only expectation is that children do what she says or suffer physical or verbal abuse. And Jawan, writing about this, rightly points out that this story exegetes our culture, one that sees children as accessories to adults. They are often seen on a spectrum of two extremes, as innocent little angels on the one hand, blank slates to be molded and manipulated, or as terrible little demons that must be broken to fit into the lives of adults. Either my mommy says I'm a miracle or my mommy says I'm a jumped up little germ. Either mom says I'm an angel sent down from the sky or mom says I'm a good case for population control. 
Both are tragic. Both do harm to children. Do you see it? We tend to either turn children into idols, projections of ourselves to worship, or we miss them entirely in our entitlement and our selfishness. Jesus falls to neither extreme, of course. He cuts to the core of our pride and our self-importance to say, you will not enter the kingdom of God with status. You have no leg up on another believer. Pride and self-sufficiency have trouble finding real estate in the kingdom of God. Instead, we enter it like children, dependent, with no resume or record of qualifications. Okay, so my hope for all of us today is twofold. That we would enter into the childlike kingdom and then turn and welcome the childlike to belong. Enter into this childlike kingdom and welcome the childlike to belong to that kingdom. Look with me at verse 3. Verse 3 in Matthew 18. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus says turn, that's the same word we saw back in Matthew 4 when he says repent, the kingdom is near. Repent and turn, it's the same word. I can't stress enough that a change must take place for us to enter the kingdom. Yes, by the grace of Jesus, we come to God just as we are. How beautiful a truth that we can come to God just as we are. But he loves us enough not to leave me where I am. He loves me enough not to leave me where I am. In our good desire to love like Jesus, loving people before they ever change, sometimes we swing to another extreme of not expecting change or coming to believe that change is not expected at all. But it is. It's just not by our own strength. And so Jesus says, turn. He says, change. In a way, he says, repent. Be converted. But how? How do we change? Into what do we change? Verse 4. Look with me at verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It says, humble oneself like children. One scholar notes that this is a faithful translation, but from our 21st century perspective, it can too easily imply that this is an issue of our mental attitude. We can slip into thinking, as long as I have a view of myself that's humble, then surely I'm doing what Jesus is telling me to do here, right? But the Greek is better rendered this way, something like take the lowly position of a child. Rather than humble yourself like a child, take the low status, take the low condition. Remember the context. He's talking to the disciples who are jockeying for position within the disciples' ranks, okay? Take the low road. Do you see the difference? The issue is not Jesus saying, hey, have a different attitude or have a different emotional state. It's actually their status and their position. The offense against the kingdom of God and their jockeying for position is that they are not willing to take the low road, the low position. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled trying to outline what general characteristics of children that, that we must be, right? People will say, oh, well, children are innocent. They're humble. They're receptive. They're trustful. And no doubt there's some wisdom in following that metaphor, but this is primarily about the disciples accepting for themselves a position in life and in the community that is low in the hierarchy of authority and decision-making. 
This is saying, are you willing to be low on the totem pole? Or do you have to be calling the shots? Don't overcomplicate this. Jesus is telling them, be socially and physically little ones. Actually be a little one. In fact, the rest of the chapter speaks to how to relate to the little people of the kingdom. Expanding Jesus' view past actual children alone and to those who don't have status or importance within our body. Matthew 18, you might know it as the, the, the chapter where we learn how to deal with sin in the church, right? Our own sin, plucking out eyes, cutting off hands, going to your brother, right? That's the rest of this chapter. It's how do we deal with sin in ourselves? How do we deal with sin in others? Why? So that we can care well for the little people. Actual little people and figurative little people. I want you to think of Alice in Wonderland. Remember when she falls down the rabbit hole? She actually has to become small to make it into Wonderland. She can't get in unless she actually becomes small. And so this is not a psychological humility. This is spatial. This is a spatial lowering. This is becoming small. This is related to, like last time, the mustard seed and the leaven, but it takes it further. It's not just that God can use small things. Here, Jesus goes so far to say that if you're inflated, you must become deflated. In the words of John the Baptist, he must increase, but I must decrease. The million-dollar question for us today is this. How can we receive children Receive the least of these. Receive Jesus if we are never in proximity to the least of these. How can we receive children and thus receive Jesus if we're never in proximity with children? How can we receive those who have no status in the kingdom of God or in the church if we're never close to them? If our lives are ordered in such a way as to avoid proximity to little ones, avoid proximity to people in poverty, avoid proximity to the needy, avoid proximity to children, and maximize proximity to the great, the influential, those who can bring us great comfort, y'all, we're avoiding proximity to Jesus. We're avoiding proximity to Jesus, who said in Matthew 25, as you did to the least of these, you did to me. And as you did not do to the least of these, you did not do it to me. People responded rightly there. When did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Y'all, when do we see Jesus? Every time we encounter a child, someone who is dependent, and someone who in the eyes of the world has no status. Do you see it? Jesus says, receiving those folks is receiving me. In the words of Matthew Henry, and it's printed at the top of your bulletin, none are too little, too young to bring to Christ, who knows how to show kindness to those not capable of doing service to him. Who are you when you're with someone who can do you no good? That can do nothing for you. Who are you then? Why is it that I'm so often content with a mental, emotional, or a psychological humility, but not really a spatial, physical proximity to the least of these? I think we can go deeper than that and ask another question. Why do we avoid anything? Why do we avoid anything? It's typically because we have a natural aversion to discomfort. 
We are bent towards pain avoidance, right? If I spend time with needy people, they might ask something of me. If I spend time near danger, I might experience danger. If I focus on the children, the least of these, what if I miss out on something or something bigger or better? What if my time and energy is inconvenienced? What if they need me? Perhaps greater than this is the fear of association. If I draw near to the least of these, will I be associated with them? What will that do to my status? The natural bias of the human heart is to move up, not down the social ladder, right? But John Calvin strikes to the heart and he says this, Those who desire to obtain greatness by rising above their brethren will be so far from gaining their object that they do not even deserve to occupy the lowest corner. Now, Jesus says we have to become like children to enter the kingdom. Some of you will rightly counter, okay, but what about growing up? What about maturity? Aren't we called to be mature? mature? And sure enough, Scripture's plain here as well. 1 Corinthians 14. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Ephesians 4. Building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may in no way be as children, tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, Christ. And finally, 1 Corinthians 13, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Do you hear it? Do, do Jesus and Paul disagree then? Jesus is saying, be like a child. Paul is saying, grow up. Not at all. The point here is there's a difference between be, being childlike and being childish. You see the difference between being childlike and being childish? Some of us can be both. <laughs> I know I can. The metaphor, all metaphors break down, but the metaphor breaks down in the fact that when I was a little child, I was ignorant of many things. To be childish, I could continue being ignorant, not learning, not growing. But that is not what Jesus intends, who he himself grew in wisdom and stature and favor before God and man. Y'all remember that from Luke chapter 2? Jesus became a child, and he grew up. And he, he, he's not asking us to do anything that he didn't do himself. Yes, grow up, become more mature, dig deep into God's word, repent, learn. But if we are ever to grow, we actually have to continue to ask the tough questions of childhood and have them answered in the hope of the gospel and for one another as we follow Jesus together. What do I mean? What would it look like to enter the kingdom of God like a child while still growing? It's been said that we come into this world asking certain questions. As young children, we come into the world asking questions. And if we don't have them answered as children, we'll spend the rest of our lives asking our careers to answer those questions. Asking sex to answer those questions. Asking our romantic relationships to answer those questions. Asking our reputations to answer those questions. 
What are some of those core questions that children are asking? And y'all, here's the thing. We're all still asking these questions. Am I loved? Do I matter? Not just for what I do, but for who I am. Can I be strong? Do I have what it takes? Am I okay in this world? Can I handle pain? Can I handle disappointment, failure? Will someone be there and be okay with me when I fail, when I experience these things? And then finally, and maybe the biggest one, can I trust? Can I trust you? Can I trust others? Can I trust God? Friends, I want you to enter into the childlike kingdom by having these questions answered by your father, the king, often by way of his other beloved children. This is important because one way we tend to avoid pain, the pain of depending on others, is to act as if we don't need anyone. But hear Jesus' message loud and clear. We are meant to be dependent on others. Unless you turn and enter the kingdom like a child, you will never enter at all. Y'all, we're meant to be needy, even though nobody wants to be. Nobody wants to be. Jesus spends the rest of chapter 18 ensuring that the disciples know how to care well for one another for a reason. It's not just you and Jesus in this. You are saved into a family, and we need each other. You are needed, and you are needy. When we are welcomed by Jesus and those who love him, we are assured that we belong. We can, we can avoid the trap of being anxious and terrified of being alone, living and dying by the approval of others. Nor, on the other hand, do we have to be avoidant, cold and unattached, keeping ourselves from being hurt. And even if you still have these nagging questions, and we all do in some way, even if learning to trust God and others is a lifetime of work, even if you still feel at times like a child, I want you to take comfort in the fact that we have a Savior who so associates with children that he said, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Friends, do you feel it? If you can be received by Jesus, if we could actually receive others in this room and in our community this way, answer these questions by way of the gospel, how deep would that go? How beautiful would that be? This leads us to our second point. Welcome the childlike to belong to the king. Welcome the childlike to belong to the king. Sink into verse 5 with me for a second. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. One. One such child. Welcoming one child is better than standing at the right hand or the left hand of Jesus as he rules the world. Have you thought about that? One child. When you think about who you want sitting with you in this service, in this community, I want you to think of the least of these. I want you to think of children. There is no one more important to the life of this church than the next generation. No one. 
Psalm 78, he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation may know them, children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Welcome the childlike. Welcome the least of these. And start with actual children. It's a great place to start. Actual children, actual little people. We don't bring them here to be watched while we get what we need. We don't bring them here to let someone else take responsibility for their faith. No, it is the responsibility of families to point our children to Christ. But families are not alone. Families are not alone. I have a whole host of fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters walking with Jesus, walking with my kids towards Jesus. I got a whole host of you that I can lean on. And when I drop the ball, I've seen you, you guys over and over pick it back up and run with it. And I need you. How beautiful that we're saved into a family, into a community, and that we are not alone. Those advocates, those people that my children have in their life, they're 70, 70 years old and they're 14 years old. They're at every age and stage and walk of life. So please hear me on this. No child ever wandered into the kingdom of God. No child ever just wandered into the kingdom of God. They must be brought to Jesus. And as a kingdom community, we welcome them. We model faith for them. We prioritize them. We raise our hand in a covenant vow to assist other parents in teaching them the way of Jesus. Y'all, this church is, is doing so many beautiful things that Jesus has called us to do, right? We do evangelism. We do mercy. We do discipleship. We pray. We worship. We grow. We confess. But I'm telling you, there is no greater honor and responsibility than growing the kingdom of God than by simply welcoming children into it. And next, exactly because Jesus cares so deeply for little ones, a really intense warning. A very intense warning. The next verse is one of the most intense in Scripture. Look with me at verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. This is not only a terrible warning for those who would sin against children, though that is absolutely that, and it should be emphasized that it's that. But notice what Jesus says. Look a little closer. Jesus says, cause to sin, not just sin against. And it can be both. Because the word here for sin isn't the traditional one, but it's a unique word from which we get our English word scandal, right? It means to cause to stumble or fall. There's another more subtle sin at view here, the sin of leading others astray, enabling others to sin, encouraging sin, neglecting a child by allowing them to continue down the path of their own hearts without intervening in love with the gospel. Do you see it? It's letting a child go astray or causing a child to go astray. One of these little ones who believes in me, someone who has faith that something we do injures that faith, damages that faith. Now, verse six marks a shift in the chapter and really could be grouped into another sermon entirely, but it's so integrally connected to the first part. I just couldn't do it. 
Because after this, Jesus turns to speak to temptations to sin personally. Another warning not to tempt others. And like we said, what to do to protect the least of these when we encounter unrepentant sin in the church. We don't have time to consider the whole chapter, but please remember the main point. We must enter the kingdom like children, dependent and consequently vulnerable and impressionable. The least of these are vulnerable and impressionable. If we impress on them or abdicate the responsibility of teaching, leading, or modeling for them a view of the world themselves or God that is destructive and false, Jesus says, woe to that person. Woe to that person who would lead a child, one of the little ones, astray. And notice that this warning is in the context of belief and welcome. Those who welcome children into the kingdom of Jesus welcome Jesus, and those who cause children to fall away from the kingdom deserve a particularly terrifying end. One scholar notes that this sin, this scandal, is to cause fatal damage damage to someone else's relationship with God. Causing fatal damage to someone else's relationship with God, the harsh penalty makes sense because Jesus takes sin and death so seriously and because he loves his own so fiercely. He doesn't want to see one of his little ones fall away. This is not only about earthly well-being, though it is. It's also about spiritual, eternal well-being. If we trip someone's faith so as to knock them off the path of salvation by whatever means, that could be by abuse, by false teaching, by spiritual neglect, it would be better if we sank to the bottom of the sea, particularly if we sin in this way against a vulnerable person like a child or a weaker brother or sister in the faith who looks up to us from a position of dependence on us. One scholar notes the seriousness of the charge lies in that these little ones have put their trust in Jesus, but someone else, perhaps a fellow disciple, has damaged that trust. This damaged trust can come in the form of discouragement, unfair criticism, lack of care, active harm, or even failure to forgive. All of which stem from the pride of despising those we perceive to be smaller, less significant than ourselves. Y'all, I know this is hard. I know this is hard. But the consequences of rejecting God personally, which we know are intense, are no less serious than the consequences of encouraging another to reject God. Do you get it? Think for a moment about this millstone judgment. The Israelites were not a, a wayfaring people. They associated the water, the deep, with evil. And you might be wondering the significance of our Old Testament reading earlier in the service. We had Jermaine read from Jonah. Y'all, Nineveh was vulnerable to receiving judgment for their sins without the protection of God's grace. They would die without the one true God if someone did not intervene. And yet, Jonah knowingly neglected them, running from God. And thus, it was better for Jonah to sink to the bottom of the sea than for him to cause the little ones of Nineveh to stumble and die without the love, the rescue, the mercy of God. It would be better for Jonah to die than for him to be the reason they did not 
or could not enter the kingdom of God. Do you feel it? Yet this story has a much happier ending, doesn't it? In his mercy, God appointed that fish. That was no accident. God appointed that fish, and he stayed in that tomb of a fish belly for three days. That was no accident. Once again, Jonah turned, he repented, and he pointed Nineveh to the Lord. And there was and is rejoicing in heaven when these, the little ones, the least of these, those despised and disregarded by society, when they come into the kingdom. It was Jonah's pride that hated Nineveh. They don't deserve the love of God. God's love does not need to go to those people. And yet God did what he, what he always does, which is show extravagant mercy and extravagant grace. All right, kids, y'all with me? Have y'all been drawing for a little bit? You've done a great job listening. Y'all look at me. Let me see your eyes. If they can't see, parents prop them up on a knee or something. Okay, got to wave. Very good. I see you guys. Are you ready? This whole sermon has been about you, okay? Um, but don't think that I've forgotten about you. I've come back to you. Now it's your turn, okay? If you've been listening, you already know that Jesus says his kingdom belongs to you. Do you know the kingdom belongs to you? Not one day, but actually right now. That's what Jesus is saying. It's for you right now, not when you're older. So you should be asking the question, how do I enter the kingdom of God? How can God be my king? Okay, so some of you may have drawn a castle. Okay, can you hold up your castle? Let me see it. Anybody draw one? There we go. See one in the balcony. I see a few castles. Let's talk about this. If you were to enter into a king's castle, how would you get in? Right? It would go come through a door, right? A, probably a big door with a big gate. Is there a drawbridge on your castle? Yes, of course there's a drawbridge on your castle. There has to be a drawbridge on your castle. If God's kingdom is like a safe castle, a fortress in a dangerous world, kids, look at me. Jesus is the only way inside that safe place. Isn't that cool? Jesus is the only way inside that safe place, inside that kingdom. In John 10, verse 9, he says this, I am the door. Kids, y'all say, I am the door. There we go. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Another place, he says in Matthew 7, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So kids, the kingdom is for children and adults who know that they're small and know that they need help. And Jesus is the door to the kingdom. So how do you get in? Now, Jesus isn't actually a door. That's a little head scratcher right there. Jesus isn't actually a door. So what do I mean when I say he's a door? He's the way in. First, before we get there, we have to acknowledge the bad news. Some of you drew a moat around your castle, right? Okay, let's think about it this way. Our sin is like the moat around that castle. We cannot get across it by ourselves. You can't do it by being good. In fact, it's the people who try to get across by get, doing good that don't make it. Okay? Kids, look at me. I'm not here to make you guys good boys and girls. Did you know that? Did you know there are lots of good, nice, obedient boys and girls who never enter the kingdom of God? That's the least of my concern, is you being a good boy or a good girl. I want you to know Jesus, and I want you to be saved. But that door, that drawbridge, 
You know who it lowers down for? Sinners. <laughs> it lowers down for imperfect kids, bad kids like I was and still am. Okay? I'm inviting you to confess, believe, and grow. Can you say confess, kids? Can you say believe? Can you say grow? You can write those three words down on your children's bulletin if you want. Confessing, what does that mean? What would it look like to confess to God? It might sound something like this. Yep, Jesus, I agree with you. I fall short of your glory. Just like me trying to jump over that moat to get into the kingdom. I can't do it. I fall short. I am a sinner and I always will be until I go to heaven, but I want to live in your kingdom until then. Does that make sense? Because that, that might be what it sounds like to confess. What does it mean to believe? This is telling Jesus, you are the only way I can be saved. The only way I can be saved. I put all my weight on you to walk into the kingdom and to leave the world behind. So that's believe. What does it mean to grow? What does it mean to grow? I can't do this alone. I want to live in your kingdom with other people who love you. I pray that my family, my friends, and my church walk with me and help me. Y'all tracking with me, kids? We confess, we believe, we grow, and then we enter the wonderful kingdom of God. Safe with him, the one true king. Adults, I make the same invitation to you. Enter the kingdom of God. And I charge you today to welcome the least of these in with you. Jesus became like us in order to save us. Become like a child, adults. Enter into their world, near to those who God loves as he has drawn near to you. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the least of these among us. I pray, Lord, that you would begin working in their hearts even now to call them into your kingdom. Lord, there's nothing that we can do. Heart change, repentance, and those who enter your kingdom is your work. But Lord, we come alongside and we ask that we would be willing participants. We confess our sin and we plead your mercy. We love you. And it's in your precious name I pray. Amen.